listening to audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. If you'd like to check out more resources, please visit twinvillageschurch.org. So we are going to be, I think that's everything, All right, we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, and if you have been following along um, with us um, in all of this, you realize that eventually at some point we're going to land and end this end the sermon series. Um, it is my goal to be done by uh, Thanksgiving. All right, so we have two more weeks-ish um, this week and then two more weeks, and then we should, be, we should be done. I hesitated a little bit because the reality is as we start getting into Hebrews chapter 13, like I could have spent a week talking about what we're going to cover in one week. Um, here I could have taken six weeks to do that, but I figured we probably should just keep moving. All right, so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. If you remember last week, we finished all of Hebrews chapter 12, and we talked about these mountaintop experiences of, of Sinai and Zion. We talked about how they represented the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant and ultimately kind of defined two relationships that we can have with God, one of fear and distance, a Sinai type of experience versus one of trust and closeness and a Mount Zion type of experience. And the question was, how would you define your relationship with, with God's? And the author of Hebrews put out, put, puts out a warning to not refuse him who is speaking um, he tells us that we are part of this unshakable kingdom, the kingdom of God, in which he then urges us to be um, thankful or to be grateful and to offer acceptable worship. And it was a fascinating, I, I was challenged by it, and I pray and hope that you were as well. And so now this morning, we're going to get into kind of the, the nitty-gritty application. That's going to continue even next week. So there's a lot of commands and a lot of let us, therefore, let us do this, do this. So there's commands coming, and they're going to come very kind of rapid fire at you. And so we're going to talk about six of them um, this morning before we will finally land the plane and then take communion together as a church family. But let me um, pray for us. Let me read, actually, the passage, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, and then I will pray for us, and then we'll have fun and enjoy our time this morning in the Word of God. The author of Hebrews writes these words. He says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we have here to gather. Lord, it is a tremendous gift of you and a blessing of you that we can do this, that we have the freedom to do this, Lord. So I thank you for this opportunity. Lord, I pray now that as we have sung hymns to your name, as we have heard prayers offered to you, Lord, that we would now be attentive to your words. Lord, your word is truth, and you sanctify us in that truth. 
Lord, your word does not return void. Your word does exactly what you set it out to accomplish. So Lord, it's my prayer that I and those here and those who may be listening online or those who may listen later on this week, that we would be humble enough and open enough to, to hear from you because we know that you indeed are speaking. So that my prayer that you would help us in this and that we would be faithful disciples of yours. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, so as just a brief introduction, right, if we go all the way back to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, right, we talked about the race of life. We talked about how we need to be pursuing Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We need to look to him and keep our eyes focused on him. We talked about how the difficulties of life include discipline, that God will discipline us because he loves us and he cares deeply for us. And that discipline could be corrective, it could be preventative, it could be to educate us a little bit about who he is and his ways. We talked about how we needed to be determined and we needed to be purposeful in the way that we live our life. We talked about how last week about this, again, this, this relationship and what does our relationship look like with, with God's? And how do we respond to that relationship? And so now what the author does and begins to do in Hebrews chapter 13 is say, okay, I've spent a lot of time talking about the vertical, right? Now let's start talking about horizontal, right? So what do you do with the vertical relationship? You have? How does that spill out and spill over into your everyday lives? You are residents of God's unshakable kingdom. So what do you do with it? What does it look like for you? And so he begins, and we'll look at uh, Hebrews chapter 13, the first three verses, and there's three things that he unpacks here about caring and what it means to be a believer. Part of that kingdom means that we need to be caring for one another, and we need to be caring for others. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality Remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. Now, it takes us to be very purposeful in that because we are selfish people. Or I am. I don't like lumping you in, but sometimes I have to, right? I am a selfish person. So my default is not to show brotherly love. My default is not to show hospitality. My default is not to remember those. It's to be about me and my comfort and my ease, and people need to be showing me brotherly love. But the author of Hebrews saying, no, 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 you need to let brotherly love continue. If you're in Christ, if you're a member, if you're a resident of his unshakable kingdom, you need to show brotherly love. Love. You have an obligation to show brotherly love. Now, the good news is, right, if you, if you were back, right, 2,000 years ago, you're hearing this letter read to you for the first time, and you're like, okay, here's, here's what I got to do. You're encouraged because he says, let it continue, right? So the church, the people were already showing it, and he's telling them, continue, like, continue in this, right? Your relationships, right, part of God's family, your Christian community should be known by brotherly love. It's a fruit of the faith that you have in Christ. 
John said, or, excuse me, Jesus said in John 13, 35, by, all, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So your love is a testimony to whose disciple you truly are. Now, it, the Christian community back in that day especially was known for their love. Even those outside the community, secular historians will talk about, right, these, these early Christians, this early church just being loving towards one another. It was kind of this revolutionary idea of being for one another and not pushing them aside. Because they were experiencing that pushing aside, but yet that community was being strengthened and drawn together, and they were still loving one another. They got attention for it. So it shows our relationship with one another, but it's, a, it's an indication of our relationship with Christ because we are united by Jesus. And so our lives need to reflect that to one another. As much as we're united by Jesus, right? It's Jesus is the glue that holds us together. We start understanding the love that we were shown by God through Christ. It's going to spill over in loving one another and being for one another. And again, this takes work. There are times when I'm not a lovable guy. And there's probably times maybe when you're not so lovable either but we're called to, to show love, so it takes work. And we need, to be, we need to be really careful. We need to be concerned for one another because as, as sometimes our faith weakens and our faith wavers and we kind of lose this kind of like, really, I got to continue doing this? Right? Very quickly and, and, and subtly, it can weaken the love that we have for, for one another. So we need to be for, for one another and pay attention to one another. Now, this early church was experiencing trials. Persecution was on the rise. They were, there was increased suffering and pressure that was put on this community. And trials do either one of two things. I think they either, A, draw people together, or B, they kind of promote discontentedness, perhaps, or, or frustration, or alienation. So it's either unity or disunity. And you're often saying, listen, I understand that life is hard. I understand that you're feeling the pressure and the weight of this, but you have to be united. Brotherly love must continue. Must continue. And if we think about just the fact that we are brothers with Jesus, right? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, he calls us brothers. And so because of Jesus, we are brothers with him. So therefore, we better show brotherly love to those who are in him because we are united in him. He's the glue that holds us all together. Let brotherly love continue. Now listen, that's, and don't, by the way, right, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. 
be, be quick to, to show love to one another. But there, there are others who are going to be traveling through that you're going to come in contact with who, who need a place and be, and be quick to show hospitality, be quick to, to, to host them, to give them food, to provide things for them, to, to care for them. And again, the Christian community was, was known for this back then. They were known for being very giving and sacrificially giving to help those in need, to help those who were passing through. Now, just to set a little bit of a context here, back, back in that day, <laughs> inns were not a great place to be. Those lodging places did not have the best of reputation. They were a tad sketchy. They weren't safe. And it definitely was not a healthy place or a safe place to be if you were a Christian because Christians were on the outs. And you didn't want to be associated with them. And so you didn't want to open up your place for, for them. So an inn or a hotel is not going to be quick to open up their doors or open up a room for a Christian because they've been excluded, they're weirds, and you don't want to be associated with them. They're on the outskirts of society, then pushed to the fringes and to the margins. Do you know that actually Christians were abandoned by their family? So why on earth would you ever let one of them into your inn? <laughs> so hospitality... Christian hospitality was profoundly important. It was a necessity back in that day to open up your home to a person, whether you knew them or you didn't. If it was a stranger passing through, right, who, who claimed maybe to know Christ, to be a follower of Jesus, who didn't want to stay because he didn't feel safe or she didn't feel safe staying in, a, in an inn or a place like that, right, open it up. Maybe they're fleeing persecution. Maybe they had to leave their town because of persecution on the rise so you can be a safe place for them. You can be a kind, unselfish, big-hearted, joyful place for them to land for a night or two to get refreshment, to get rest, and to have a safe place to lay their heads. But when you do that, you're putting yourself at risk. Why are you letting them in your home? People were watching. People were paying attention to what was happening in the community. And he's saying, listen, you need to show hospitality. Right? And, and, and again, that's not our default. That's not my default. I'm selfish. I want me time. But he's saying, no, open up your homes. Be willing to do this. In fact, there's a greater blessing in you providing hospitality than receiving hospitality. We went to the Czech Republic um, twice. And our first trip there, we stayed in a couple's home. And it was great. Right? Thankfully, they spoke English well. But it was, it was an absolute blast. And it wasn't, right? It was, and we, we enjoyed receiving that hospitality from them. But in the conversations with them after that, they said, we, you don't understand what a blessing it was to have you in our home and to get to, to know you. Right? So it goes both ways. So it pushes beyond right, the limits of our church family because sometimes you don't know who you're actually ministering to. 
You have no idea who you're ministering to. And I think this is a, re uh, a reference to Genesis 18, when Abraham hosted the three men, one who turned out to be God himself, and he showed hospitality. He and Sarah showed hospitality to them. Right? But we have no idea the impact of our hospitality. It goes beyond just meeting material, physical needs. You have no idea how it can encourage a person's soul, right? It can encourage their hearts. They could be on the down and outs, and just the fact that you would take the time to show them hospitality and, and, and to, to share a meal with them or to grab a cup of coffee with them and say, hey, listen, let's, why don't we just get together and do this? You don't know what that's doing for them and how God is going to use that for them. You, you get to know people on a completely different level. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Do not neglect to show hospitality because you don't know who you're entertaining. You don't know who you're taking care of. Right? God does, brings people to your, to, across your paths of life for purposes. It's never a mistake. He, doesn't, he, he uses everything. So you don't know who he, why he has this person coming into your life, but show them hospitality. Use what God has blessed you with to bless others. Right? It's opportunity for gospel ministry. Now, we do GGCs, we do small groups here, and, and one of the, the beautiful things I believe about those groups is that they, they meet in homes. Right? And I know the people that, who host them that might not be the most, it's not really super convenient every single time we get together. I get that. Right? But to meet in somebody's home, right? it, it takes it to a different level. You get to know people on a different level because you're, you're, you're in their home. It's personal. So I would encourage you. It was prayed at least twice this morning about GGCs and small groups. Get connected into a small group. Get plugged in. Right? And what we need to remember is this, when it comes to hospitality, right, is that because of Christ, we're adopted into his, into his family, we're adopted into the, into the unshakable kingdom of God, and I would argue that that's the greatest ultimate form of hospitality that could ever be shown. And so in Christ, you've been shown the ultimate hospitality. The least that we can do is to show hospitality to, to others, even strangers. Let brotherly love continue. Remember, um, do not neglect to show hospitality. And remember the prisoner. Remember those who have been or who are being mistreated. Okay, And this is not just a simple, oh, yeah, I remember him. Oh, yeah, I remember them. This is a, I remember them. What can I do? So it's not up here. It's here, but it's like, okay, you remembered this, so now what do you do? How do you live that out? How do you respond? And your mindset needs to be, okay, imagine if I'm the one sitting in the prison cell next to him. What would I want someone to do for me? Do that. You see a brother or sister being mistreated, Pretend that, imagine yourselves there next to them being mistreated with them. How would I want someone to respond and do that? Now, the prisoner, back in the day, um, there, was no, there was no time limit on how long you would be in prison. You were just like in prison. 
You could be held in prison until your trial. You could be held in prison until your debt that you owed someone could be repaid. But there, there was no time frame. It was like, all right, for the next 30 days, this is where you are. Just like, okay, you're here until. And if you were there for too long, and maybe they forgot about you, but if you were there too long, then we're just, you know what, we need to free up a cell, so we're just going to sell you into slavery and be done with you, and that way we have room for somebody else. And just because you're in prison doesn't mean that they're going to take care of you and meet some of your basic needs. And so if you're a prisoner, you're really relying on friends and family to meet some of those basic needs, like foods. So prison life was very different back then. And so when he says, remember those in prison and those being means if you know that there's a brother in prison and you remember that, you need to figure out a way to go and to serve them and to bless them and to act. Don't be ashamed. Don't be fearful. Again, if you're going in, if there's a Christian brother in, in, this, in that context, if there's a Christian brother in prison who's there, and you don't know how long they're going to be there for, but you remember and you go, to, and you go to, to help them and provide food for them, you're putting yourself at risk. You're guilty by association. Why are you talking to him? What do you care that he gets foods? Don't be afraid of that. Don't be ashamed of that, right? You can't remove yourself from the needs of a brother or sister. You can't. Brotherly love, hospitality. Remember, you can't remove yourself from this. You're in Christ. You need to act. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And, and that verse and that phrase is in the context of, of, of the uniqueness of the body of Christ and how we're all different. We're all different parts of the body. Some are eyes, some are hands, some are feet. But we're, we're different, but we're all part of one body. And so if one person is suffering, the entire body is suffering. How is God calling you to help that person, that brother or sister in their suffering. How are you going to act? How are you going to, to respond? Now, we bring this right to 2021. In America, we, we don't have a whole lot of, right? I mean, I think there's concern, I'll put it that way, but we don't hear a lot about people being in prison because they're Christians. People being mistreated because of their, their faith. But we need to get beyond the life here in America and start looking at the church globally. And think of the people and the believers who are suffering and suffering dearly for their faith. Right? Be praying for the persecuted church. And the little that we do, the little that we can do, perhaps, Right? Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that you're doing unto him. Right? So even, even that prayer that you offer to, to the persecuted believers, 
right? It, 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 it's, it's an intercessory prayer that it's ministering to, to Christ. You're doing it to him. You're aware of his, his children who are suffering, and you're praying for those children, those brothers and, and sisters. And to help us, right, get our, wrap our heads around this, Jesus was persecuted for you. He was persecuted for your salvation. He was persecuted to redeem you and to bring you into the kingdom, that unshakable kingdom of God, and to pay your sin debt. So we need to be thinking and remembering those who are persecuted as well and those who are being mistreated. And then there's this little shift that takes place. And verses four through six, I think I said there were six things we're talking about. We're going to talk about five. Um, so I apologize for that. There's two more things that he's going to talk about now. Marriage and money. Now, if there are ever two things that were like universal and that were, that were, that were challenges that speak to anybody and everybody, it's, it's marriage and it's money. And so when he talks about marriage, he says these words, let marriage be held in honor among all, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now there's a really clear structure here that the author it uses to, to drive home the point. Right? The subject clearly is marriage. Right? The command is what? That marriage be held in honor among all. Which, by the way, it's a pretty comprehensive statement if you think about it. Who does all include? All. He restates it that the marriage bed should be undefiled. And now here's the reason why should marriage be held in honor? Why should the marriage bed be undefiled? Here's the reason. Because God will judge the sexually immoral and... Adulterous. So if we hold marriage, and again, he's writing to the church. He's writing to believers. There's a reason why he's telling them, let brotherly love continue. Show hospitality. Remember those. There's reasons why. It's not just random thoughts popping in his head. The people needed to hear that. And they need to hear that marriage should be held in honor that marriage is valuable, that marriage is precious. You need to have a very high view of marriage. Marriage needs to be something that you defend. Marriage needs to be something that you promote. Don't redefine it. God's established it. Defend it. It's beautiful. It is a good thing. It is precious. God's design in marriage is for one man and one woman to make a commitment together before God to be together till death do them part. That's God's design for marriage. It's a reflection. It's this, it reveals the union right between Jesus and his church. So says Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. 
It provides the man and the woman a, a framework for, for safe, intimate companionship, for, for sexual expression, marriage. Marriage was honored by Jesus himself in his teaching in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Pretty clear. <laughs> what is Jesus saying there? Well, it's between a man and a woman. Right now, now, we live in a day and age where, like, that's all there. It's all kind of confusing, but it's really not confusing. It's between a man and a woman. You promote that, you defend that, because that's God's design for marriage. What else he's saying? He's saying, well, the, the, the two, there, there's, this, there's this leaving, and, and these, these two, this husband and wife, this man and this woman, they, they, they leave their parents, they, they come together, they, they cleave together, and they spend their lives together, right? The two become one, and so the lives just kind of become intertwined. So it's this leaving, cleaving, their lives just kind of weave together. That's God's design for marriage. It's God-ordained, what God has joined together. Let not man separate. There's a lasting component to marriage. So to hold marriage in honor and for it to be undefiled means that we're going to promote and defend biblical marriage. And it starts within the church. It starts here. It starts in our own lives. It starts within the life, the life of the church. And, and why, do we, why do we do this? Right, what's the reason? Right, because ju- God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. You start redefining marriage. You start redefining what biblical marriage is. You're taking what God has designed and saying, eh, it's not good enough. I know, I know better. You're messing with his creation. You're messing with his order. And you, and you will be judged for that. Now, the sexually immoral, that's a really, that's a general term. Right? It, does, it includes adultery, but sexual immorality is referring to, to, to anyone who engages in sexual conduct, sexual relationship outside marriage. Whether you're against it, and you're like, I don't care, I'm going to do it my own way, but you're outside, you're pushing against God's created order and God's created design. Now, what I found helpful as I was studying this and thinking through this and how to like talk about this but keep it PG-13-ish, right, is this. And, and, and Al Mohler was profoundly helpful in, in thinking through this, right? And so I'm, I'm paraphrasing something that he wrote. 
that Christians often have a, a checklist mentality. I tend to have a checklist mentality. Do, don't, do, do, don't. That's my mentality. The Bible does not. And he goes on to explain that what the Bible teaches about sexual immorality in all its different aspects and manifestations, right? And then those seem to be like growing as, as the days tick by. Cultures always kind of redefining, trying to redefine things. And the Bible doesn't get involved in a lot of that redefinition, but it does speak to one central idea. He says, and this is, this is the central idea, that sex belongs in marriage and nowhere else. And so anything that goes against that, anything that goes and tries to redefine that, actually is undermining and dishonoring marriage. And so it's an attack on God. It's an attack on God's design and this gift that is that he has given us in marriage. And so if you're going to attack him, if you're going to desecrate him, if you're going to call him into question and doubt him, you're going to be judged for that. You deserve his judgments. And now this warning is, is given to the church. The warning is given to the church, to the members of the church. Honor marriage. Defend marriage. Don't let the marriage bed become defiled. God judges the sexually immoral. God judges the adulterous. Those who turn their backs on their marriage vows. He judges them. So marriage was under attack. Had to be. Why would he encourage them and say, hey, pay attention to marriage? Fast forward to 2021, marriage is under attack. Pay attention to, to marriage. Defend it. Promote it. And I think under, under some of this, Right, if we remember, if we go back to Hebrews chapter 6, right, in the warning passage in Hebrews chapter 6, and we talked a lot about how participation doesn't equal salvation, just because you sit in a seat in here doesn't mean that you're a believer, like that kind of idea. So I, th I think underneath this right, is, is a subtle warning that if you're in unrepentant sin sexually, if there's sexual immorality in your life and you're not willing to deal with it and do business with God and kill that sin, that might be an indication that you're not a true believer. There's a warning here to deal with sin. Honor marriage. It's precious. It's good. Because here's the reality, right? Because you bring this now back to the Hebrew people that were hearing this, right? Pressure and trials and suffering impact or affect marriages. I have a bad day. Sometimes the person that pays for that is my wife. She wasn't even part of it. Right? So like it affects 
marriages. The, the stress and strain of life affect marriage. So the other people are saying, guard it, protect it. It's a good thing. You need one another. Two become one. You need each other. Protect it and guard it and fight for your marriage. We're in Christ. And one day we'll all sit around and enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. And finally, he talks about possessions. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. The subject there is life. How you live your life. What is your lifestyle? The command is be content. That's the commands with what you have. So it's restated with the love of money. Now the reason why is because God has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. So if you're content, it means that you're going to trust God to provide for you. He's promised to care for his children. He promises to, to provide for his children. You're going to trust God to provide for you, come what may. Now, these people who are hearing this for the first time, right back in Hebrews chapter 10, were going to help other people, and their houses were being pillaged and plundered. And so he's saying, like, pillage away. You've got Christ. God's going to provide for you. Be content with what you have. The love to love money or, to, or to, to not be content means that you're relying on created things to provide satisfaction and security for you that only God can provide. It's idolatry. So if, if you love money, and if you're not content with what you have, you're, in essence, accusing God of being negligent or incompetent to care for you. You're, you're lacking trust in Him. Now, listen, we live in a day and an age right, where the, the commercials and the advertising and the marketing, right, is fantastic. They're really good at what they do because you, you hear things that you desperately need that you never knew you needed. That's what it's built on. I need to figure out some way to get this six seven guy in Maine to, 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 to buy this side-by-side. I'm not sure how I'm going to do it, but I'll figure out a way. I'll wear him down. That, that's, that's what's going on. That's what, that's what the, 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 the consumerism of America does, the advertising in the market. So we have to be really, really careful and really, really diligent to make sure, hey, we're not loving the things of this world, that we're, we're careful with how we live and how we spend what we spend because God has given it to us. And he said he's going to take care of us, come what may. I can trust him in that. Well, wealth, being wealthy is, is not 
sinful. It's not. God blesses people in different ways, and having money is not sinful. It's what you do with it. It's how, tie, how closely you're tied to it that becomes the issue. Is it an idol in your life? Like, wealth does have like, its advantages. It does have its disadvantages. It's difficult to have it and to not trust it because it's like right there and you can count it. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with its income. This is also vanity. It's fleeting. It's temporary. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says to Timothy, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, I, I believe that the chief pang, if you will, is, is anxiety and stress. That, that money brings, because you, you never have enough. You always need more, and you're protecting it. You're paranoid. You're nervous, maybe. You're, you're, you feel insecure. I need, I need to steal a little bit more. You're pierced with many, many pangs. It's the, it's the opposite of trusting the promise that I will never leave you or forsake you. It's quoted from Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. And in that verse... I will never leave you nor forsake you. In the Greek, and we we have to go geeky here for just a moment to drive the point home, is simply this. It is the strongest way to negate something. So I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's two ideas there, leaving and forsaking. It's the strongest way to say no in that language. It's not even, there's no potential that God will ever leave you or forsake you. It's not even possible that God would ever leave you or forsake you. It's not going to happen. He won't do it. He said he won't, so he won't. You can trust that he's never going to leave you or forsake you. Stop thinking about it. He won't do it. Even when you're faithless, he remains faithful. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. Stop loving money. Stop being discontent. He's got you. He's got you. So this means that we can have confidence to say in verse 6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Answer? Nothing. Nothing that matters because you're in Christ. We can trust God for more than finances. We can trust Him with our life. He's bought it back with Christ and the shedding of His blood. Jesus is our helper. He's our Savior. He underwent suffering and temptation in order to help us with that suffering and temptation of of goods and wants and the things of this world. How did Satan tempt him? I'll give you all this. It wasn't even his to give, but I'll give you all this. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every way, yet without sin. 
He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows the draw of possessions. He knows the draw of money. Yet he's without sin. And so then we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We're loved and saved, and we're saved by the God who owns it all. Who now speaks through his son, Jesus. Right? And he's met our deepest need, which was salvation. That was the deepest need any of us ever had, was salvation. And if you're in Christ, he's, he's saved you. He's met that deepest need that you have so you know he's going to take care of everything else. Because what you needed was Jesus, and he gave you that. He saved you. So he'll meet all the other ones. So you see how he just kind of slips in this? Remember I was talking about the supremacy of Jesus all the way back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1? And guess what? It all comes back to the supremacy. You have Jesus. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. Man, man can't, don't fear anything man can do because you have Christ. So this, this commitment that he's calling these people to, right, is, is living out this commitment in the nitty-gritty daily throes of life. Brotherly love, hospitality, remembering, marriage, money. How you live matters. Right? We, we can't separate. He's made it abundantly clear. You can't separate the daily parts of life from, from theology and from, from God. You can't separate from the, from the gospel. Jesus is in all five of those things. I try to make a point. Brotherly love, hospitality. Remembering, persecution, marriage, and stuff. He's in all of it. You can't separate the two. He's, he's there. And so it's in our daily lives where our relationship with God starts getting flushed out a little bit. And, and there's a testimony to the watching world. He's saying, listen, how you live matters. Now, you're, now you're, you're, you're Sinai, you're, you're not doing this because of you're, you're separated from God and you're fearful. He's going to you know, zap you. You're doing this because you're in Christ and you understand what God has given to you in Christ. And so it changes the way that you live. It changes your desires and the passions and the way that you live your daily life. He's urging them because of Christ to live in a way that honors and pleases God. He's urging them to live a certain way because of what God has done. We do because of what God has done. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for uh, this time to be in your words. Lord, in the truth of your words. Lord, and it's easy to, to sit here and to, it was easy for me this week as I was studying and preparing to sit here and to have this checklist mentality and, and, and to do all of that work. Lord, but if, but if we walk out of here <laughs> with that being our only takeaway, Lord, I believe we've missed the point. Lord, the point is that your son Jesus stands above all. 
It's like we sang to open up the service that our worth is not in what I own, it's in Christ. And so that changes the way that we live. Well, it needs to change the way that I live my life. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep Christ at the center, to keep, to keep our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith as we run this race. And that we live because of what he has done for us and what he has accomplished for us. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others. And for more information about Twin Villages Church, visit twinvillageschurch.org. Soli Deo Gloria.